My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Beth. Everything seemed awesome at first, but over time he started bizarre arguments, and I ended up feeling like the crazy one. JT. I had never loved anyone as much as her, but she started lying about almost everything. When I tried to end things, she lied and told me she was pregnant with my baby, and then she wrecked my car on purpose. Anonymous from Michigan. I never thought I'd be someone who would stay with a person who hit me, but there I was. By the time the violence started, I couldn't disconnect emotionally. I loved him, felt totally dependent, paralyzed, and terrified to leave. If you relate to any of these listener comments, which are just a few I've received since running the Dating a Sociopath series here, my heart goes out to you so much. I hope you have found or are finding all the support and healing you deserve. Dating abuse and relationship violence affect people of all ages, genders, and ethnicities. doesn't matter where you're from, what point in life you are, it can happen. But thankfully, there is truly hope, help, and thriving to be had. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so thankful that you're listening. Today's guest endured intimate partner violence herself and went on to write a novel loosely based on the experience. We'll explore warning signs that your partner may be abusive, ways to get out safely, and more. We'll also hear Dr. Megan Fleming's thoughts for a listener who survived sexual violence and, although she's done a lot of healing work, has recently felt triggered by kissing. If you appreciate what you hear today, please hop to my website, augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org for more Girl Boner content, including my blog, episode extras, links to books that my guests have written, products they sell, and my Girl Boner book series. Both Girl Boner books are full of stories and exercises to help you take your sexual empowerment journey deeper and have a lot of fun in the process. If you enjoy either book, I would love to hear what you think by way of an Amazon review. Now I'm so pleased to welcome Christina Hogue to the show. Christina won a prize for writing interesting stories when she was six years old, and she's been at it ever since. She's the author of novels, Girl on the Brink, named 2016 Best of YA by Suspense Magazine, and the noir crime tale, Skin of Tattoos, a 2017 Silver Falcon Award finalist. She also co-authored Peace in the Hood, Working with Gang Members to End the Violence. A former journalist for the Miami Herald and Associated Press, she reported from 14 countries around Latin America and the Caribbean for major media outlets including Time, Business Week, Financial Times, and the New York Times. She now makes her home in L.A., where she's taught creative writing to lifers in a maximum security prison, as well as teen moms and at-risk girls at alternative high schools. Such beautiful work. Thank you for joining me, Christine. Thank you, August. I'm happy to be here thrilled, actually. Your book is really lovely, and I'm really inspired by the advocacy it provides in a way that you are, you're really 
showing what it feels like. And I think anyone who has not gone through an abusive relationship, it's hard to understand once things get rough, like, why don't, why don't you just leave? But it's a gradual process and there are some patterns. What's one of the first signs that you saw in your own relationship looking back that there were problems? Well, the problem is that there are, are clear red flags to to these uh, relationships, but they don't appear as warning signs or red flags. So the first thing is that the abuser will typically come on really strong. They are completely obsessed with you. They are infatuated. They tell you they've never been in love uh, like this before. They've never met someone like you. And, you know, this, of course, that doesn't seem like a warning sign or a red flag at all. Uh, but it just seems it's it's almost like good, too good to be true, like a movie romance, like it's just some Prince Charming. And, of course, this is immensely flattering. And I just fell, you know, I was just like bowled over by it. I was, I mean, literally, as they say, swept off your feet. And that's, ex- and it's absolutely part of the sort of grooming process that the abuser does. These are very calculated moves. Yeah. And that's typically the first one. Yeah. I've heard it called love bombing, which as soon as I heard that term, I thought that's completely what, in my experience, what it felt like just to have this like explosive attention, you know, and to feel so special. And and it's interesting because in your book, the main character who she's going through this as a teenager she feels a little irritated by him at times at first and then kind of, oh, like, oh, I see why he was that way. And you, and or just things that seem a little odd and kind of you talk yourself out of seeing it as abnormal, the importance of intuition. And I think sometimes those those red flags might be present, but we don't as you said, we don't recognize them, but sometimes we talk ourselves out of like gut instincts. Did you have any sort of intuition early on or sense that maybe there was a problem? Did you have any sort of things that you talked yourself out of? Uh, there were plenty of things. I mean, as, uh, you know, right at first, no. But I mean, even at first, I didn't actually like him, but he grew on me. And again, he just did. And they, they're very persistent. They just won't give up because, of course, they're just so bowled over by you. You're just so. Which can seem you know, really romantic, right? Oh, it's absolutely romantic. In the I movies. Mean, movie. Oh, my gosh. It's a movie yeah. romance. And <laughs> movies, you know, typically portray this. Um, this is like the movie ideal of a romance. And I, again, I fell for it. And I was just like, and it was so intense. And again, it's just this huge huge, intensive emotion. And yeah, little things started to sort of crop up and pop up. And, you know, he would do odd things and start being very, he would ask a lot of me. I would have to, he he lost his keys. So I had to come home from work one day, rush home to find his keys from for him because he needed me so much. Uh, he just wanted me there so much. And so all these little things started to sort of pop up. But of course, you justify them because you want to. You want to overlook them because this guy is just... You know, who you've never had anything like this before. I mean, it's so you want to keep it. I mean, it's almost like a drug. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And you do. You develop a, a dependency over time. It right. does feel like an addiction for sure. And it's interesting because when he was, you know, demanding that you come home or asking, like, I really need you, it, it feels good to feel wanted and to feel needed for sure. But then sometimes it has more to do with control of your your time and how you are moving about in the world and dictating things. And it can be kind of a fine line. Did you start to feel like there was a lot of that happening? 
Oh, absolutely. So again, this is control, as you as you accurately pointed out. Again, it doesn't seem like that at the time. It seems that they need you. And I, I will say that abusers choose their I don't know if we want to say victims prey. They choose their their partner very carefully. They they really study you, and uh, they often choose uh, people with vulnerabilities or who sense that they have low self esteem. Or you know, in my case, I hadn't dated really or had a serious relationship in quite a while, so I was really kind of out of practice of this whole thing. Um, sometimes they go for very educated, you know, I was a journalist, uh, you know, high echelon sort of uh, women because it becomes a conquest to them. Um, so, but again, th- then this starts this controllingness about, you know, controlling your time. Will you, you know, will you get me this? Will you come over here? I want you to come here with me. Oh, I just want to show you off. I want to meet you all your friends. He wanted to meet everybody, all my friends, all my, my work colleagues. I want to know everything about you, Christina, he would say. Mm. And again, to someone who... Um, you know, has been kind of, I've been very, I'm sort of an introvert. I've been very shy my whole life. I, I had a different sort of an upbringing. I grew up around the world. So I had to, to fit in as a, as a kid, as a teenager, I often had to put that away. So, I mean, this was just like the, uh, you know, what, uh, the heavens opening up and just this gush of sort of love and acceptance just came down on me. And I actually told him once, I said, I think you're the angel sent to me from heaven. I mean, I, I really literally said that. And mm. at that time, that was how I felt. So that I would go, you know, so of course, there was nothing I wouldn't do for him. I mean, I did tons of stuff. It's very, very powerful. You mentioned the studying process. I think that's so important to to recognize. And that can be a quiet process. I think sometimes, even though the love can feel really intense, uh, you know, as I shared in my my own story, I was being studied in an acting class where you pour out your whole soul. And he knew I had been going through a divorce and had some self-esteem issues because of some of the relationship stuff. And uh, it took me a long time to realize that, oh, gosh, <laughs> this, you know, so much information. Uh, what was the studying process like for you? Um, well, yeah, an acting class would be perfect for that. I could totally, totally see that would be the ideal environment to pick someone uh, to go after. Um, I don't, you know, he, I met him, I was a uh, reporter at a newspaper and I'm actually, he called up the newsroom with a story. So I got talking to him on the phone and then I ended up meeting him and he asked me out for dinner right away and, and, um, you know, just sort of came, came on strong. So whatever I said, I don't know, but he picked out something. He was uncannily prescient about people. And I later learned this about, uh, I think he had borderline personality disorder, which we can go into the kind of the personality types that make up abusers. But, um, and I later read uh, a book about borderlines that says they have an, a, sort of an uncanny feeling about people and intu- intuition about people. So all I can say is he really zeroed in on something from the get-go. Mm. And at what point did you start to recognize that it was abuse in while it was happening. Looking back, you could see the grooming process and that it was calculated. Was there a specific turning point for you? You know, I didn't really recognize it as abuse. I really didn't. I, I thought I knew there was, you know, as time went on and, and on and on, 
Uh, I knew there was definitely something wrong with him, and I could sort of I would go over this list on my fingers of these odd behaviors he had and and things, and I just you know he ne- clearly needed help, uh, and I wanted to give it to him, but I really didn't recognize until I finally I felt I was going crazy, and I called a therapist, and I knew I need I knew I needed help because I thought I was going crazy, and she said you know you're in a domestic violent. Um, you know, an abusive relationship. And I was like, whoa, you know, holy shit. I, you know, I'd never sort of occurred to me that that could happen to me. And that's the other thing, you know, it always, these things happen to other women, not me, but it happened to me. Of course, of course. And were you experiencing, obviously there's different types of abuse. Were you experiencing physical violence? Not a lot. The one, he sort of knew the line to go there. Uh, he once threw me uh, when I was threatening to leave him and I was packing up my bags and, and he blocked the door. And um, he's like, well, all right, if you want to go, go. And then I, I approached the door and he grabbed my wrist and then he just threw me. He was quite tall and, you know, um, well over six foot. And luckily I landed against the bed. Uh, if he'd thrown me with the other arm, I would have landed against a dresser and probably, you know, had blood pouring out of my head, but I, I landed against the bed. Um, and another time he sort of shoved me with his knee and get up, get up, uh, you know. Uh, so that was the extent of sort of the physical stuff, but, you know, as far as like violent. But, you know, domestic violence also en- encompasses a huge range of other physical behaviors, such as towering over someone, jabbing uh, their finger in your face, um, you know, breaking your stuff, your property. Uh, you know, all these things are physical things. Th- slamming the wall as an intimidation tactic. They won't hit you, but they'll hit the wall and, and punch a hole in the wall. That's pretty frightening when people get like that, you know, um, when they're getting so enraged because then you think, well, is that, am I going to be the wall next? Right. And you might think, justify it in a way and say, well, they're not being violent directly to me, at me, you know? Right. But that's still violence. and It's, it's still violence. It's meant difficult. to intimidate. It's all a coercive tactics and an intimidating and threatening behavior. Um, driving too fast in the car. And, you know, he would love to drive at 90, 90 miles, 100 miles an hour. And he'd look over and see what my reaction was. And just, to, you know, again, it was all this sort of odd testing, this, this intimidation stuff. It was... You mentioned feeling like you were crazy, as a listener had written in, written in as well, saying, I felt like I was crazy. I know that's also called gaslighting, where somebody, you might be having an argument and the person perhaps, you bring up a legitimate point and they say they have no memory of that, you're making it up. You start to question your own ability to recall things and have rationale. What were some of the instances where you started to feel that that craziness about yourself that prompted you to reach out to a therapist? Yeah, I mean, it's all about, you know, the minimum. Oh, you're upset about that? I didn't mean that. You know, oh, I'm ju- I just said that in the moment or, you know, no, I didn't say that. And you're thinking, OK. And then he would just, you know, say odd things about other people. Um, you know, one time there was an incident that he told me we, we'd gotten a, a free hotel room from some hotel. So I called the hotel to get the free hotel room. There was no free hotel room, this this person. And then at the time it was a job. Oh, didn't you hear so-and-so, um, you know, said he was hiring or something. So I'm like, oh, OK. So I called the guy. And he's like, no, I never said that. So, you know, again, it was like these odd fantasies that were playing out. And I thought, am I missing something here? Or is it, you know, and again, looking back on it, but 
And, you know, he would say things about himself, too, that, you know, and I they could be true, but they, they weren't sort of plausible. But, yeah, they could be true. So, you know, you just never knew where where you were on things. Yeah, the deceit can be really difficult. I know abusers also can isolate you from friends and family, which makes it much harder to, first of all, have anybody notice, <laughs> you know, that something's off or, second of all, someone to reach out to. Did you have a support network? Were there issues with... Um, feeling like you couldn't connect with loved ones? Well, I moved out from, I was in Florida when I met him, and he got me to move to Los Angeles. That's how I actually came to, to L.A. So, of course, I was completely isolated here. You know, my any uh, friends and family were 3,000 miles away. And, um, and again, he would hover over the phone when I talked to my mother. Um, he would, and then things start, oh, well, they're just jealous of you. He, I would mention some friend or some acquaintance that I had here, here in LA. You don't want to hang out with them. They're, you know, you're, you're much more than them, Christina. They're just jealous of you. You know, and, and whenever I would, or we'd be in a group and I would strike up sort of a friendly conversation with someone, they're just jealous from you, jealous of you. They just want something from you. Don't hang out with them. You know, you're much more than, than they are. Wow. And so it was all this sort of really intense sort of isolating stuff. Wow. And do you remember the first time it occurred to you to leave or break up? I know oftentimes it doesn't just happen once. You know, it it can be very challenging to get out of such a relationship. It usually is. Um, but what was the first time that you actually, it occurred to you that maybe it wasn't a good idea to stay together? Well, the first time was when I came out here on a visit, and uh, he went into one of these Jekyll and Hyde rages over nothing uh, after an evening out and uh, started accusing me of not being uh, really in love with him, not being committed. I was flirting with, you know, this one and that one at the, at the dinner. And I mean, just literally he went into a gas station and then came back with a drink in his hand and was in this absolutely f- terrifying rage. And I just couldn't calm him down. So after that, that was only a few months into the relationship where he was already starting to press me to move to L.A. Uh, that was the time when he threw me. And I and but again, he was successful in sort of w- winning me back because, of course, I wanted the good stuff. Because you still remember band. that so right. well. And you think that that's the real one. Right. Right. And, Which is you know, so I wanted hard. the good stuff back, not, yeah. not this bad stuff. So that was the first time. And then after, of course, I moved to L.A., I was sort of, you know, hook, line and sinker. I was above my head now. And I was now in deep water because I was, you know, I'd moved um you know, I sold my house. I had, you know, just quit my job. I, you know, had moved out here. And so it took a long time because I'd made such a big commitment to, to this relationship to try and make it work. But after a while, it was like, a, a, yeah, about a year later, I just said, yeah, this is, you know, after I tried to get him help to get to move to a therapist, he promised to go to a therapist and never did. Uh, you know, this went on for a while and it just got so bad that I had to uh, yeah, I had to leave. Then even when I had to move out, so I moved out. Then we, I started seeing him again because, again, he pursued me. He stalked me, um, you know, followed me. And I got a job and I got my own apartment. And I was still seeing him. And then it took – it was almost like a weaning process. I had to wean myself off him. Then it took another three or four months to just finally – break it off with him, you know, completely. And just, you know, as my therapist said at the time, you have to bring down an iron curtain and you will have to hold it down because he will be battering on it. And that's exactly Mm. what happened. Oh, I'm so sorry that all happened to you. I mean, stalking is its own traumatic thing. 
Yes. I mean, he would he would hang around my workplace uh, at night and call. I had to work some night shifts because I was a, a journalist and I had to work these night shifts. And I think he would he would drive by my new place and see whether through the, the he could see in the garage whether my car was there and figure out that at 2 a.m. I was probably at work. And then he would call the the my work and um and then he called some colleagues of mine and wanted to find out about me. And, I mean, it was just, it got pretty intense. And then he would stalk me on, you know, whether it was Facebook or uh, at one time it was Gmail chat. I felt like I was playing whack-a-mole. He would literally just pop up whenever I was sort of online. And I had to kind of would do the whack-a-mole thing and block him, block him, block him. How did you feel? I imagine it could be a whole mix of emotions. It sounds pretty scary, how how did you feel when you would just see him popping up at a physical location or online? You know, it was, yeah, it was scary. and But I knew I just had to, you know, keep blocking him off. At the same time, and this is what people, you know, don't really understand, you know, I, I really loved this guy. I was so in love with him. And, um, and you can ask why, I don't know. But, you know, again, he reached into my core like nobody else had. And you know, you really fall for that. And so at the same time, I really, you know, had to be strong and not go, remember the abuse to not go back. And um, and it was very difficult at times. Reminding yourself of the hard times, that sounds really, really important. Yeah, because a key thing. Yeah, because it must take a lot, part of the healing process, as you said, it's not breaking up with someone that you hate and dislike and is abusive. You're breaking up with someone who you have real love for. Right. That's very complicated. It is, and again, I've I've been to a you know a support group, uh, domestic violence support group, and it's and it's the same story. You know, you can miss your abuser, but you you miss the good side of them, not the bad side. And because the good stuff was was great, and eventually the bad stuff outweighs the good stuff, and that's when you you know have to make that decision to to leave or, or what you're going to do. But um, yeah, so it's a tremendous uh, emotional wrench to get yourself away from these guys. And then I think, too, the tendency for us to feel shame around our feelings and or shame around us kind of, quote, letting this happen. Is that something you relate to? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And this is why, you know, it, it's funny because when I wrote this book, um, you know, I wrote it for teenagers. It's a, it's a young adult. Uh, the main character is 17. And the, the guy in the, in the story is 19. Um, and when I speak on it, you know, I go to different, uh, I speak a lot at writing groups and clubs and book, book conferences and things like that. And I always get women coming up to me saying, that was me. You know, I was in an abusive relationship for, or an abusive marriage for, you know, 14 years or something. And it is so incredibly common, but nobody wants to talk about it because it's, it's very shameful because there's a lot of judgment. And even when I tell people, um, and I've sat across from people and, and I've shared this experience and I can just see the look that their, their whole face, like uh, this look comes over like, how did this happen to you? You know, you're smart, you're a college graduate, you know, you were a foreign correspondent. And I can just see that puzzled look. And one time, I remember this one woman said, and I didn't know her well, and I, I, after that, I, I learned not to overshare. I think I was oversharing. She looks at me, she, she, she says, so what does this say about you, Christina? And I'm thinking, oh, okay. Oh, wow. So I, I've learned to not, now I don't share too much about it. Um, again, unless I'm talking about my book or something. But, 
Yeah, it's that judgment. And that's why women don't talk about it or, or other people, you know, victims of this. Just because it's so there's so much judgment. Why didn't you just get up and leave? How did you manage to stay? You know, he did that to you and you've stayed with him. So there's no um, and, it, and it is puzzling. I mean, from the outside, it's a very baffling, um, complex, you know, set of emotions and behaviors in this. And it's not well understood. So that's when, why the judgment comes in. I, I know that. But still, it just feels really, you know, it was it's humiliating. It really, really? I really felt humiliated. Oh, that's so hard. It's, it's interesting because so many people will hear you speak about this and feel very validated because they relate, you know, and that's so important. And I think it's so important for anyone who's listening and might feel a little bit of judgment is to like take a breath and 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 really listen and try to imagine and and learn because this is these are things that are patterns with pretty much every abusive relationship which really says this is a very legitimate thing that happens it's very traumatic and i know there can be a physical dependency too and abuse can affect our sexuality in so many different ways it's different from having an abusive friend you know you're actually sharing a bed with this person and you may be very sexual with this person and i've heard many different variations and renditions of how abuse would affect sexuality what are some of the themes that you encounter when you when you talk to people or maybe in your own experience as far as the impact on sexuality well, abusers typically use sex as sort of a manipulative tool or a weapon, if you will. But it's, it's it, they, I mean, it's like everything else in, the, they, in their little toolkit. Um, and at first, they'll do, you know, it's all about you. And especially in the bedroom, they'll, you know, want to please you and do, you know, again, they know how to, to, to treat you and what you want. And it'll be all, um, you know, it'll be all about you. And so it'll be great sex. In my case, the sex, the interest in sex kind of dropped right off once I was sort of hooked. And um, he was no longer interested in that whatsoever. Uh, it was sort of just... It was withheld from you. Yes, it was withheld. And I would want to stay home instead of going out. And he'd say, no, I'm going, you know, we're going out or whatever. He, he wasn't interested. You know, oh, we're going to have sex later. And then he'd just go out. So it was, it was almost, yes, it was like this withholding, again, this manipulative thing. Now, again, after I left him and, and actually uh, moved to another apartment, all of a sudden sex came back on the scene. Oh, <laughs> now, <laughs> so it now wasn't I'm you. having sex again. Yeah, because that's know. something I hear from people. One person that I interviewed about her experience dating someone who seemed to be a narcissist, she said that she internalized a lot of it because we were taught and this is one of those you know not very helpful societal messages that that men are just they are all about the conquest and they have this really high sex drive all the time so she thought that there was something wrong with her that oh he's not attracted to me she would try different lingerie and she would try to like seduce and then it it really impacted her moving forward and i love that in your experience you were like oh when he, when the common denominator is there, it's him. It's not you. You know that that right. it was the freedom from from the person brought you so much more richness and balance. Yeah, I mean, it's just again, it's all part of this sort of gaslighting thing to make it think seem like it's all you, and that's part of the thing is is you know they'll, they'll never accept blame for it. Well, you made me mad. You made me do it. You know how to tr push my uh, push my buttons, Christina. You pushed every button. I'm like what button? You know, I mean, and, and it's always you know they're never they never accept responsibility for their behavior or their feelings. So it's it's always about you. So again, that part of thing like well, if you dressed better or you know more, we were sexier, you know, I'd be more interested in sex. 
you know, that kind of thing. Ah, yeah, the manipulation is so intense and layered and just impacts so many areas of life. We have a somewhat related question from a listener uh, who wasn't necessarily in an abusive relationship but did experience assault. And I think it ties in with what we're talking about because of healing from trauma, which, which happens when you're in an abusive relationship. This question comes from Brandy, who wrote this. I was sexually assaulted about 10 years ago, did a lot of work to heal, and came very far. For some reason, kissing has been really triggering for me lately. Unwanted kissing was involved with the assault, but I kissed other people in the last few years and was fine, so I'm not sure why this is happening. On top of that, it seems to be getting worse instead of better. Have you heard of this kind of thing? I'm not sure what to do about it, Brandy. Brandy, I have absolutely heard about this kind of thing. It's very common, as I understand it, to we can be triggered at any time throughout the rest of our lives. And it could be even that you feel like you're really in a safe place now. And that can be really shaken when when something happens and we can be triggered by a smell or a sight or a, a feeling or an experience. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Brandy, thanks so much for your question. You know... I'm so glad that you're raising this and also to hear that you've done such great work healing from this traumatic experience. That being said, you know, for reasons that are not clear, sometimes old memories sort of think of it as um, neuropathways, supercharged highways, all your healing work basically you were no longer engaging them, right? They sort of fell off and you then no longer had the reactivity and the sort of frozen stress response, like the fight, flight, or freeze. And so you had done all this healing work. Relaxation had replaced um, what had once been sort of that visceral embodied traumatic experience. And yet something more recently came up that it's almost like, you know, it just got stepped into, right? Something evoked, and it may have been the context, maybe it was a smell that was familiar, or perhaps even though this is consensual, maybe there's a level of passion right behind the kissing that even though the passion in your brain got confused, right? That that kind of arousal is both fear and or excitement. And perhaps in that moment, your brain started old fear kicked up and it got interpreted in that way. And so these old supercharged highways in a sense that hadn't been revisited in so long, they just like those, that feeling was like kindling to the fire and whoosh, like I can imagine in a minute, all that old traumatic experiencing just came up and into your body. And so, you know, it's important that you recognize just like you've already done this healing work, healing work is still, um, possible. And the two kinds of modalities that I highly recommend for doing um, trauma work and body-based trauma work would be uh, EMDR, which is the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, And the other is, uh, well, there's two, but they're sort of the same kind of working. One is called somatic experiencing, which is the uh, work of Dr. Peter Levine. And the other is sensory motor psychotherapy by Dr. Pat Ogden. And these are all body-oriented healing approaches. Um, So in the context of EMDR, basically, you're looking at that trigger. And the protocol is sort of focusing, the role of EMDR is this eye eye movement, right? It's bilateral stimulation. And it's unclear why um, going left to right, left to right helps, in a sense, the brain process that traumatic memory. But and they've done a lot of research um, on the effectiveness of these different therapies. So they 
even though they do not know the why, they definitely know that they work. Um, and so the role of the bilateral stimulation in the context of what they call a target. And in this case, it could be this kissing. And it's even the memory. It doesn't have to be happening in the moment. But what's happening is the protocol addresses those past memories, you know, the initial traumatic experience, the present distress or disturbance, what's the feelings and sensations that are coming up for you now, as well as future actions. And the whole idea is to, in the context of this therapeutic environment and with specific specific targets in mind, really helping sort of the body, think of it, if it's, if it's stuck, right, it's helping to process it, think of it metabolizing, so in a sense, so it can get just jet digested, and it's sort of like completing a cycle, and that's part of what the somatic experience is also, it's like helping to facilitate the completion of those motor responses, those self-protective motor responses, and the release of those sort of thwarted survival energy um, that's still bound in the body. And so it's about helping unstick that frozen and sort of processing it, as well as in general, the goal is to increase difficulty, your tolerance, right, for difficult body sensations and suppressed emotions. So Brandy, even though I know this may be startling to you and you're questioning the why now, I want you to know that you do not have to live the rest of your life in any way still getting triggered by kissing. So definitely check out. And I, often you hear me say when you're doing therapy, see more than one therapist. So in this context, maybe try an EMDR and then try on a somatic experiencing or the sensory motor psychotherapy because you are your own expert. And then you will know which feels like the better fit or the therapy that you first want to start with. And knowing that there's always uh, options that, as I said, have they've done a number of clinical trials. There's a lot of research. So we know that these are effective therapies for processing trauma. So Brandy, please do give us an update. We'd love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what she said about different modalities for dealing with trauma, such as EMDR, which I think is really fascinating, and sensory motor psychotherapy. And just knowing that, you know, you have done this wonderful work, Brandy, and you're so amazing for that, and and that you can get through this too. I love that you're being proactive about it and saying, you know, I don't I don't want to be experiencing this. How can I better manage? And and also giving yourself grace to to let yourself feel triggered. You know, I think we can shame ourselves for feeling offset by something. And you have every right and every reason to feel however you feel. And I just am sending you so much hope and love and, and hope everything goes really well for you. Uh, I'm wondering, in your experience, did you ever feel triggered after the fact, like after a lot of healing had happened? Did you ever experience, did certain things kind of jolt you and remind you and take you back? Um, not too much. At, at first, it was really difficult. And I would avoid the, the you know, I'd take huge detours. Um, so I wouldn't pass the apartment where we lived. Um, I, you know, and I would avoid places that I knew he hung out. Um, so it was, you know, I, I really went out of my way to avoid those kind of triggers. And every now and then I would catch sight of him uh, in a supermarket parking lot at one time. And another time it was at a driving by or he was at a gas station or something. And I would have this physical reaction and my stomach would start flipping. My legs would sort of turn to jelly. I would just like, you know, have a really uh, this strong like fear would just take uh, overtake me. So I learned to just, um, again, just avoid everything to do with him. And it was tough because at the same time, and this is the puzzling thing, I really wanted to see him. I mean, I, I wanted to hear his voice. I wanted some thread of connection to him. 
Um, and for me, I had writing. I wrote poems about um, him and got them published and sent them out to some poetry journals and things. I ended up writing that book, which, again, you know, brought me back to a lot of stuff uh, at, a, at a much closer time to when it happened, uh, which actually was good because it made me, like, rush through the, you know, I had to get this book done. So it was a good motivating factor to get it finished. And now, you know, I haven't seen or heard him for, you know, in, in, I've heard of him in, in years. And um, hopefully it'll stay that way. Um, but it, it is a jolt, you know, and it's something that's, uh, you know, it's like a, a Category 5 hurricane that, that comes into your life. And that's what it felt. And, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a long time and it's always to heal from it. And it's always going to be there with you in yeah. some in some way. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I love that you said it takes time. And sometimes I heard Dr. Megan say this in a in a recent episode she was talking about sometimes you move further by moving allowing yourself to go slower Mm -hmm. you know I think we can try to rush through I know I've done this you know rushing through to try to I want to heal faster like I want to feel of course we want to feel better sooner Um, but what happens sometimes is we shame ourselves for not feeling fully better yet and giving ourselves permission to to let it unfold and to take it day to day and I love that you found outlets where you could take these feelings, these feelings of attraction and love and infuse it into something that was meaningful to you. How, what was that decision process like? You know, I've just always been a writer. So, I, you know, I just poured out my feelings in, in poetry and stuff. And I think it did, really did help. And then I would put it out there and I just um, and I thought, well, maybe he'll see it one day because I know I know I guarantee you and he probably still does cyber stalks me, you know, because I knew he saw he would do that with other people. Um, you know, look at, you know, because now I have a website and, you know, my books are up there. And I just thought, well, maybe if he cyberstalks, he'll read this. And that, that's my way of saying, you know, I really did love you. But, you know, it was it was not meant to be. Mm-hmm. So that that was how I sort of th- thought about it. And, um, yeah, and it's just you have to let yourself feel these feelings and just recognize that it's not slipping back or, or you know, you're not going to go back into it. But you just have, it's a mourning process. You know, there was a reason you fell in love with this person to begin with. Um, so you have to, you know, allow yourself, get, be, be kind to yourself as you as you work your way through it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That self-compassion seems like a really big piece for sure. Tell us about your decision to write the book and also why you chose to focus on uh, a teenager as the main character. Well, I went through this in my early 40s, so I was not you know, far from being a teenager. But I really felt strongly about um, sort of giving a guideline to teen girls when they're starting their dating lives as to what this looks like. Again, I, I had no idea. Nobody teaches you this stuff in school or anywhere else. You know, nobody no, tell, tells you what the red flags are and, and signs. So I was completely blindsided by the fact that I had been got myself into this this abusive relationship. So that's why I felt really strongly about making it a teen romance. Um, I toyed with the idea of writing a memoir, and it just was too much for me. I think it would just, it, yeah, I just didn't want to write that deeply about me and why I got him, because then I would have to go really in deep into some gritty places, why I allowed myself to get in that, and I don't know if it was, I really wanted to go there. And, yeah. and again, I, so this was a, a good sort of medium point, I think. I love that it is a, a young adult novel, which is very enjoyable as an adult to read. Very, I appreciate it so much. And the writing is, is wonderful. And I think we all remember, you know, our, our first dating experiences. And 
And I feel like a teenager reading this book, it could be very preventative, not only validating if, you, if you're going through this or if you have gone through this, but, but potentially help you see the signs sooner. Yeah, and that's my goal. And there's hopefully, you know, because they're all there. And I try not to, it doesn't, I don't think it's got a preachy feel to it. Also, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a real story um, without preaching, but it's all in there. Um, and it's got a lot of suspense in it as well as, as we go on and we see the things that uh, Kieran does to, to Chloe, the, the girl. Um, so I wanted to, that was another thing too. I didn't want to make it like a, some preachy sort of, you know, don't do this and don't do that. So I wanted to make it as a, as a, realistic. Yeah, thing. which it completely is. And it's a very compelling story, which is great because I think that it's kind of a, not a side effect. That's not the right word. Frosting or something. It's a bonus that you also learn, you know, right. that you're actually enjoying the story. And um, I think one thing that's really challenging for a lot of people, once they start noticing that or realizing that these things that are happening are abuse, it's very hard to take those steps you were talking about where you you don't respond to a text or you block someone or you make some distance. Any advice for somebody who's struggling with that and they feel like because they want to respond, they almost feel like they have to respond. What do you do? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's tough because, I mean, I wanted to respond. And I, I mean, I was so lonely at times. And I remember one time I pulled a muscle in my leg and I was limping and I was just in pain. And and if he had shown up at that particular time, <laughs> I think I would have just like fell into his arms. I really would have. Because um, I just felt so like down, and but he didn't luckily. Um, but you just have to really be strong. You just have to really reach inside yourself and think what kind of life and relationship do you want for yourself? And you know, after this all happened, I felt sort of like a Humpty Dumpty. I'd fallen off the wall and I was in shattered in a million pieces. So I had to sort of pick up the pieces, say, well, how do I want to be going forward? And look at why I got into this relationship again. Uh, myself, what were the factors? So that's why I had to really look at this because if you don't do some self-examination, you're very vulnerable at getting into another relationship like this again, and many women do. Um, so I think it's important to really do some self-examination um, in the in the aftermath of these things. I know that a lot of people are in danger when they break up with somebody who's abusive that sometimes the highest risk of, of violence or the worst case scenario, um, murder happens when someone's leaving. Could you speak to safety and leaving? Yeah, well, you're right that this is the most dangerous time typically when um, someone tries to leave an abuser because then they, they get desperate because now they're losing the object of their control. This is all about control. And um, so this can be certainly the the um, the most dangerous time and often leads well not often, but can lead to, to um, death. But what you have to, I would say, seek help, call a hotline. And again, you might have to call from a a friend's phone, a neighbor's phone, because abusers typically will monitor your phones. I've known cases where they've taken away uh, people's phones. Um, Call a hotline. Get get yourself to a support group if you can. And form a safety plan, which involves getting some money, keys, uh, if you've got children, you know, some clothes, and getting like a little suitcase or something with somebody safe. Uh, and, and, and then you, you've got to kind of make a run for it, basically, and have some place to go. If you end up in the street, you're going to end up, he's going to come after you and he'll end up um, getting you and bringing you back and the abuse will probably be even worse. So you've got to come up with a safety plan uh, with different things like a phone, uh, money, uh, a place to stay for a while. 
Yeah, planning seems so important and seeking those resources, people who know about this and and having trusted people that you can confide in. I think that's that's really, really huge. So tell people where they can pick up Girl on the Brink. By the way, Kirkus Reviews called it an engrossing tale of a dangerous teen romance. It's so compelling. Uh, where can people purchase it and also learn more about your work? Um, it's on Amazon as uh, an e-book, uh, as a Kindle book, a print book, and audio book. It's on Audible as well. It's on Smashwords. It's on iBooks, iTunes iBooks. Um, and I think that's about it. I th- might, might be on some other outlet. Barnes & Noble. I think it's on Barnes & Noble as well. And uh, yes, and, and ChristinaHogue.com uh, is my website. And you can look up uh, look a lot more information about it and sign up for my newsletter on the, on the website. Thank you so much, Christina. And thank you for being here today. You're welcome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And if you're in immediate danger, remember to call 911 or, again, practice a prepared safety plan. If you've experienced sexual assault and need to talk to someone, please contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline online in English or Spanish or call them at 800-656-HOPE. That's 4673. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app wherever you're listening if you haven't. And I would so appreciate a rating and simple review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.